Now let me read to you out of the book of Matthew, chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed on all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, by no means least among the rulers of Judea, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Herod called the Magi secretly and find out from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. Go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so I may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they'd seen then rose ahead of them until it stopped over the house where the child was at. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Nowhere in the Gospels do we find a single word that the Matthew spoke. Yet his gospel gives us the words and works of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if Bible readers were to jump from Malachi right into Mark, or Acts, or Romans, they would be bewildered. Matthew's the gospel that is a bridge that leads us out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. You need Matthew. The Old Testament book is a book of promise. When you read all the Old Testament, it's a book of promise. While the New Testament is a book of fulfillment. To be sure, there are many precious promises in the New Testament, but I'm referring to the emphasis of each half of the Bible. One is promises, one is fulfillment. One purpose of this gospel is, is to show that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah. Matthew used at least 129 times quotations or illustrations from the Old Testament in his gospel. He wrote primarily to Jewish readers to show them that Jesus Christ was indeed the promised Messiah. Each of the four Gospels has its own emphasis. Matthew is a book that is called the Gospel of the King. It was written primarily to Jewish readers. Mark is a book called the Gospel of the Servant, and it was written to instruct Roman readers. Luke wrote mainly to the Greeks and presented Christ as the perfect Son of Man. And John... He appealed, his appeal is universal. And his message is that this is the Son of God. No one gospel is able to tell the whole story as God wants you to see it. 
But when we put these four Gospels accounts together, we have a composite picture of the person and work of our Lord. Now, being accustomed to being a a systematic writer, because he was a tax collector, right? Matthew gave us a beautifully organized account of our Lord's life and ministry. And the book can be divided up into ten sections in which... There's doing and teaching are alternatives. So you got doing, then you have teaching, then you have doing, then you have teaching. It works out that way. Now, one word further about the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew arranged his material in topical order, which would a Jewish person would do, rather than chronological. He grouped ten miracles together in chapter 8 and 9 instead of putting them in their historical sequence. He was writing to people who thought that way. So when you go read Matthew, you got to pay attention. Okay, when did this happen? When did that happen? Where did it happen? The wise men are a surprising twist in the narrative of Matthew. What does their presence indicate and how does getting to know them help us prepare for Christmas? That's what we will be looking at today as we look into God's Holy Word. Now, we confess that we know little about these men. The word translated wise men, or magi, refers to a group of scholars who study the stars. Their title connects them with magic, but they were really more astrologers. However, their presence in the in the biblical record is not a divine endorsement for astrology, as someone said on television the other day. God gave them a special sign, a miraculous star, that announced the birth of the king. The star led them to Jerusalem, where God's prophets told them that the king would be born in Bethlehem. They went to Bethlehem, where they worshipped the Christ child. Now, we do not know how many wise men there were. Okay, did I get your attention? From the gifts, from the three gifts that's in Matthew 2, chapter 2, verse 11, some people and church tradition have given, have assumed that they were three kings from the Orient. Although, actually, that's not absolutely certain, certain. Keep in mind that these men were Gentiles. They weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. And from the very beginning, from the very beginning, Jesus came to be a Savior to the whole world. That's what's recorded in John chapter 4, verse 42, if you want to look it up later. He's the whole world. These men were also wealthy, because they could do the trip, and they were scholars, and they were scientists in their own right. No scholarly person, no honestly scholarly person following the light of God that God gives them will miss the opportunity to worship at Jesus' feet. Jesus Christ is everything. In Jesus, all things are hidden. The treasure of wisdom and of knowledge. Now that's Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. If you want to check it out, everything's hidden in Colossians 2, 3. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. That's Colossians 
This section of the Bible that we just read to you earlier makes a great soap opera. Oh, I could I could write a soap opera out of it, or even whatever you call those new kind of um, housewives of whatever and all those type shows, you know, um, whatever you call them. See, the Magi were seeking the king. Herod was afraid of the newborn king and wanted to destroy him. The Jewish priests were ignoring the king, and the priests who knew the scriptures and pointed it pointed they pointed others to the Savior, but they would not even go to worship him himself. They quoted Malachi chapter 5, verse 2, but they did not obey it. They knew it by heart. They were five miles from the very Son of God, and they would not go and see him. The Gentiles sought and found him, but the Jews did not. Could you make a soap opera out of that? Matthew chapter 2 verse 9 indicates that the miraculous star was not always visible to the Magi. It came and went as they needed it. As they started towards Bethlehem, they saw the star again and led him to the house where Jesus was. By now, Joseph had moved Mary and the baby from the temporary dwelling, the stable, and they moved into a house. Right? That's Luke 2, 7. Now, the traditional manger scene that assembles together the shepherds and the wise men, it's actually not true to scripture. It, 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 the, the, the Magi arrived at a much later date, but it was actually done in a musical, I can't think of the word, symphony, um, when they got the musicians and the actors. What's the name I'm trying to say, Clyde? Opera, that's close enough. I, I think there's uh, probably the right name. I don't know. I don't know those type things. That's why I don't sing up here, right? But they did that much later. And it, it looks beautiful. But the Magi weren't at the stable, just so you know. They were at the house. The Bible says house. That's a correct translation. Now, I personally actually find it intriguing that Matthew shares with his readers about the wise men. You see, one of the things that makes the gospel accounts unique is who their who appears to be their attended attended audience. Matthew targeted the gospel towards Jewish audience. That's why his book so heavily relies on the Old Testament and the Old Testament quotes, and he begins the first chapter with the genealogy of Jesus showing the lineage of the promised Messiah, because that's what the Jews demanded. And he continues by telling them of the obedience of Joseph. But then he takes a left turn and introduces the wise men, a group of Gentiles who seem to better understand the good news that the Messiah has come than the Jews who have been watching and waiting for the promised Messiah. Can I say they were stupid? And thou fit right in. Why would he do this, though? Personally, I, I, I believe he did it to bring home the point that Jesus is for all mankind. It doesn't matter your past, it doesn't matter anything. Once you ask Jesus in your heart, that's all forgiven. The Messiah wasn't simply going to be the king who rides in on a white horse, rallies the troops and conquers the world and brings Israel into domination. The Messiah was coming to restore the opportunity of the entire relationship with God for all of mankind. 
So, we want to take some time today to get to know these wise men and learn from them to be ready for this journey into Christmas. Because how many of you gotten frustrated with your journey into Christmas the last couple years? Okay, only me? I mean... Okay, well, I'm going to help your journey. I, I promise with this. Who were the wise men? The Bible doesn't give us any details. Simply that there are wise men from the East. Various church traditions have developed over the years, including different terms to describe them. They are magi. They are priests. They are advisors. They are prefects. They are astronomers. They are kings. It comes from all church traditions. The story of the wise men is a story of mystery. It for it presents the question that we cannot answer. Actually, many of them. Where did they come from? We don't know for sure. How many were there? We don't know for sure. How did they know to follow the star? We don't know for sure. We're not told. How about that? And they, just as mysteriously as they come in, they go out. And they're, they pay homage to our king. A newborn king in a state. And the, the, then they just disappear. They're gone. Scripture doesn't give us many details. But tradition has a heyday. Tradition says that they were three in number. And that they came, traveled on camels across the desert, you know, and uh, over the crescent circle, silhouetted against the nighttime sky, graced with palm trees. Oh, they weren't out in the desert, they were only at the water holes, right? Tradition gave them, gives them the name Casper and Melkor and Baldazar. And tradition tells us that they, where they came from and what they did and where they went. Bible doesn't, but tradition does. I, no, I love studying them and read it all. Church tradition tells them, tells us that they were actually baptized by Thomas, and when they died, their bodies were preserved in Constantinople. Centuries later, when Constantinople was going to be raised, they moved them to Cologne, and if you have the price of admission, that thing on the top is, that's where their bodies are. Remnants of their bodies are in that thing on the top, but you gotta to pay to get in the church, because the state owns the church. Tradition has told us their story in total, entirely. The only problem, it's all just tradition. There's no proof of a lot of what we say. I like saying it, but I like dreaming about it. But but I am certain of one thing. The number of wise men and women increases in every generation. More and more people that follow what we know about the wise men than what we don't. This morning we're going to concentrate on what we do know about the wise men. First, they were willing to step out in faith and follow wherever God led them. Why were they following the star? How do they know if it's important? Since the Bible doesn't tell us, we can only guess. And they're educated guesses, but we can guess. 
The major empires of the East were Babylon and Persia. Persian empires. That's the two major of the East. And we also know that Babylonians specialized in studying the stars. We know that during the Jewish exile that David and a handful of Jews and the and the, David, who was the prophet of God, rose to such prominence that he became chief of the wise men. The Bible says that he became chief of the magi. They were in Babylon. And he was actually the third ruler of the kingdom. And then when the Persians conquered the Babylonians, Daniel became the president of presidents, that's actually his title, under King Darius. Therefore, many scholars, and I, I kind of go with them on this, that the wise men from the East had ample opportunities to know the Old Testament. The, the scriptures and the prophecies, they'd studied them. And maybe they were familiar with prophecy out of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. You might want to check it out later. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come from the from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. But when they saw the star, star from Jacob, they were ready to go and worship him. And so he was ready to shepherd Israel. To be the king of the Jews, to be the king of kings and lord of lords, whatever the case, the important thing is for us to realize they were ready to go. To follow God wherever he would direct them. And God has always been faithful in his leadings. God led the children of Israel across the wilderness. He led them by providing them a a cloud, a pillar in the day, and a fire by night. He provided for them for food. They're hungry, they drink, they're thirsty. He provided for them. Even when they were naked, their shoes did not wear out. And now he's providing a star for the wise men to go to the place of the child. God may not lead us quite as dramatically that way today. Any of you got a star? No, I never got a cloud or pillar either. But God promises to lead us if we'll let him. Someone said the eye of faith is the one that is willing to take the next step and trust God to direct that next step. We don't know what tomorrow holds, or next week, or next year. But we know that if we're in God's hands, if He leads and He will guide us, and if we, He'll guide us if we just let Him. Turn your life over to Him. Just let Him guide you. Jesus said, I will not leave you alone. I will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to guide you in all truth. That's what we have to remember. We have a guide. So we have God's leading, leading us day by day, dwelling within us, on the throne of our lives, leading and directing each step. Even so, the wise men's generations, their generation and our generation has been divinely led, if we just will be willing to be led, by listening to God's holy word. If you're not in God's holy word, you're not going to be led. 
Let me explain this. Let me take you back to the wise men as they were preparing to leave their homes to follow the star. To where the journey started. I want you just to imagine the neighbors. How many of you got a neighbor that knows everything? How many of you got a family member that knows everything? Or any of your family members think you're crazy? Oh, you're going on a journey. Yes, we are. Where are you going? We don't know. Well, how long are you going to be gone? We don't know. What are you going to do when you get there? Whatever it is, we're going to worship the king. What king? We don't know. Why are you going? We're going because we have read the scriptures and we've seen the star in the sky and we have this strange stirring within our hearts to go. I can just imagine those neighbors as they shake their heads and said, and you call yourself wise men? (laughs) Our world looks at us the same way. Your co-workers will look at you the same way sometimes. They do, whether you know it or not. They think you're just as crazy. That's not so bad, though. How foolish to take off on a journey not knowing where you're going or what you're going to do when you get there or when are you going to get there, how long are you going to be gone. Yet the journey of faith has always had those characteristics. They must have said the same thing about Abraham when he left Ur, the Chaldees, and, and go to a place where God had promised him. He didn't, he was just walking out in the desert. They undoubtedly said the same thing about Peter and Andrew and James and John when they left their profitable fishing business to follow, to become fishers of men. Men and women of faith who have been willing to respond to the challenges of the unknown have heard the same kind of things over and over. Are you crazy? No, I serve a God who can overcome anything I mess up. That's the bottom line. My my favorite example of this is William Carey. He's my personal favorite of modern time. Well, somewhat modern time. He was a shoemaker. One day he heard that millions of people in India had had no one to lead them. No one had ever gone to India with the good news of Jesus Christ. He believed that that great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel included him. So he volunteered to go to India and was told, Young man, sit down. When it pleases God to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. William went anyway. For seven years, he supported himself without seeing one single convert. Let me say that again. He worked for seven years without seeing one single convert. But he lived to see hundreds of churches and thousands of converts. He just didn't give up. Seven is a wonderful image for God. Today, he is called the father of modern missions. He set the standard how to reach a country that wouldn't know God. You should read about his books. They got lots of books on him. He's great. All because he was willing to let God lead his life. 
in his, I love his quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can't keep our lives. Our lives are a fleeting moment, a vapor that appears and disappears. When you give up, you cannot gain anything. You can't gain what you can't lose. Don't give up the battle. See, you're no fool if you stand strong. Men and women have responded in faith, are out in the front lines in our world right now. They're in danger zones. Our missionary, look at the missionary wall. We have a Coptic church that meets here. Um, They meet on Sunday night. Tonight they'll be meeting. The one thing they all have in common, they're all from different countries. Every one of them has lost an immediate family member. That means they've been killed for the cause of Christ. That's what ties that church together. They all speak another language. And they like incense and they like robes. But every one of them's lost, had killed an immediate family member. So we opened our doors to them. That's what you do. You help them out. Now, I'm going to share with you a bold statement. They were wiser than the men of the world. Matthew records that the wise men ended up in Jerusalem. I guess this is the most logical place. You're hunting for a king. You go to the capital, right? You know, you, you hunt for the center of Jerusalem. The temple of God is all in Jerusalem. Of course, the palace of the king was there too. And if anybody would know the birth of a newborn king, shouldn't the king of Israel know the birth of a newborn king? So King Herod asked the question, because he didn't know anything about it. We understand. Think about this. They go up to him. We understand there's been a newborn king. We have followed his star, and we've come to worship him. Where is he? King Herod knows nothing about it. He should have known. He was familiar with Old Testament prophets. Herod should have had the answers to the question, but he did not. And what's the most amazing thing of all is when Herod finally had the answers, his decision was to try to kill the Messiah of God. Incredible. He was like a child standing before a locomotive and saying, Stop. You can't stop God. You can't stop the Messiah. King Herod, of all people, should have been the first one in line to worship, but he failed, and he tried to kill Jesus. He tried to stop God's program. Herod was a wise man in the eyes of the world, but he was a fool. Herod summoned the chief priests. They were wise men. They knew the scriptures. They knew the prophecies, forwards, backwards. They could... They could they didn't even have to look it up. They knew the answers. They, when asked about the newborn king, they answered, he's born in Bethlehem. They knew it. They had memorized it. Even though they knew it, they didn't bother to go find out if it was true. They were wise men in the eyes of the world. But they were fools. Some... Today, at many degrees, the world has the same image of wise men. Some stand in great halls of learning. 
But the Bible says that a man is a fool no matter how many degrees he has if he says there is no God. The Bible says they're a fool. Not me, not my opinion. I'm sorry. It's just a fact. People listen to me. I don't care how wise the world may consider anybody. If someone that says that the virgin birth can't happen, that a sinless life can't be lived, that the resurrection cannot be reality, they're just plain fool. They're ignoring all the evidence. A true wise man still comes seeking him, and they're wiser than that of the world. Now, as we start to finish, i got to try to finish up here quick, because we did a lot today. The wise men worship and they gave gift to the king. People have worshipped in all sorts of different ways. Some worship, some are worship, oh, they worship all sorts of things in this world today. They worship men, they worship things, and all of them are worshipping the wrong things. The wise men came to worship the Christ. It's rather amazing, isn't it? They were from a pagan world and they, they worshiped the stars and pagan gods. And when the wise men come to worship Jesus, they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These gifts have given risen to lots of speculations about the symbolism of the gifts. Gold represents wealth, obviously. King Solomon actually sat on an ivory throne inlaid with gold and jewels. Solomon's temple was plated in gold. And, and we can read of the golden streets of heaven. Obviously, gold represents wealth. Granted, he was born in poverty and died in poverty, but because he's God's son, he has all the wealth of the world in his hands. It don't matter. Frankincense is derived from cutting a, the slit in the bark of an Arabic tree. And the yellow sap, oh, it's an agreeable fragrance. Last night, the, the smoke was coming down. You had to open up the side windows. I mean, oh yeah, they over smoke, right? You know, the incense for the Orthodox service. Ah, frankincense represents worship. Worship of a new king. Mirror comes from stunted trees. It's brown, fragrant pulpits used to anoint the dead bodies and embalm and preserve them. Mirror represented the work of the mission of Christ. Wealth, worship, and work. Make a tremendous outline for a sermon. I could preach it. But I doubt if the wise men took time to figure it all out before they gave their gifts. When they saw the star, they grabbed whatever there was available. They grabbed what was worth money in haste, let alone to sit down to come up with a carefully calculated plan of the symbolism of the gifts. You can preach it, but... It, I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't say it that way. Isn't it amazing that we give gifts to everyone at Christmas time? Love doesn't give just because to give. Love gives what it has available to give. They gave to express their adoration and worship. We need to do the same. We squander more. We waste more. We 
forgot that treasures laid up in heaven are laid up forever. Drawing dividends on all eternity. We need to give as the wise men gave. Verse 12 tells us when they departed, they departed their country on another way. Men and women have come to worship Christ throughout the generations have always gone home another way. You cannot go home the same way after worshiping Jesus. You cannot go through baptism and be the same ever again. Saul of Tarsus came, became the Apostle Paul. And he was breathing out fire and threatening against the church. And he was willing to kill Christians to preserve the purity of the Jewish religion. And then one day he met Jesus. And he was never, ever to be the same again. And he went a different way. I can give you lots of examples. I can give you lots going on. But you heard enough. Today we've been blessed. This weekend we've been blessed. Our church is partnered with other churches. We break down barriers. Our church has seen a person saved from the pit of hell. We break down barriers. You had children up here eagerly wanting to serve God's kingdom. I volunteer kids. They're much cuter than you. No offense. It can make you nervous at times. It's okay. We serve a God who's a God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances. And when you say you're his, he just says, this is my adopted son of God. You aren't going to heaven as a servant. You're going as an adopted son and daughter of the Most High God. Get that through your head. Oh, that's a hard line. I got work to do here. I'm used to working. What am I going to do when I don't have work to do? I get to worship all day. Now we need to close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, although we're hurrying quickly, let us not close quickly. Let us stand before your presence and say thank you. We thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the the information we can glean from the wise men. Father, we have come to worship. We are not like the world. We... There are times when we have no words for what we want to say, but you know what it is. Now guide us and direct us in all we do. In your son's most precious name, amen.